journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Good afternoon, a Shavua Tov. This is Rebetzin Edel Kozilski, and I'm with you for the next 45 minutes while we transverse the mystical texts of the Torah. We are learning the five books of Moses. We are going to ground zero. We are looking into the Bible itself, um, that which was written and uh, recorded by Moshe Rabbeinu by Moses when he received it on Har Sinai, which, in fact, we are coming close to. Just in terms of cyclical time, we are in the middle of the Svira. We are in the middle of the time uh, between uh, Pesach and Shavuot. And um, it was on Shavuot, on Pentecost, as it is called in the English terms, where Moses went up and uh, landed up um, getting the five books of Moses. So we are in chapter 28. Last week we began a new parsha, a new portion. Um, it is, in fact, the portion of Vayetze. Um, and we spoke about the fact that this portion starts when Asa, when Yaakov starts running away from his brother Asab. And even though he's heading towards Haran, he's heading towards, uh, his mother's brother's house, Lavan, uh, he makes a U-turn because he realizes that he should not be, uh, going to Haran without bypassing the, the most special place in Israel, and that is Har HaMoria. Why was Har HaMoria so special? As we know, um, it was, it's there where Abraham, um, built an altar, and Abraham also, uh, sacrificed, or nearly sacrificed Isaac. And Har HaMoria, we know, is very, very special, not only because of Akedas Yitzhak, because of the sacrifice of Yitzhak, but it's also very special because this is where um, the temple, the first temple, the second temple of the Jewish people resided. Um, it is where the third temple of the Jewish people will reside. And the reason why it is so special is we are told that it is really the eye of the universe. It is the place where there is a special rock called Evan Hashtia, the foundation rock. And it is this rock from which the whole world was Created. It is also the interface between heaven and earth, and so it's a very, very powerful, a very, very spiritual place. And of course, that we understand in modern day terms, and um, for any person who has gone to the Western Wall, Jew and Gentile um, alike, one cannot but Feel the presence of godliness at the western wall. The western wall is the outer wall of the temple. It is not the temple itself. The closest that you can get to the Evan Hashtia, so to speak, to this foundational stone is to actually go on a tunnel tour. In the tunnel tours, um, they take you along a very narrow uh, tunnel which takes you to um, a place where you stop and they say, this is as close as you can get to the Kodesh HaKadoshim, to the Holy of Holies. That was the innermost chamber of the Beit HaMikdash, of the temple. And the Kodesh HaKadoshim actually stood over the Evan Ashtia, stood over this um, miraculous foundation stone. So that is the closest you can get, even though just coming close enough and standing by the Kotel, 
one can already sense and one can feel a spirituality that one doesn't ordinarily feel standing at any other wall. I don't think one feels like that um, or felt like that at the Berlin Wall or the Chinese Wall. Um, but coming back to our story, Yaakov felt it necessary before leaving the land of Israel to make a detour, a U-turn, and go and pray on Har Hamoria, on Mount Moriah, um, before he leaves to go out of the land of Israel. What we do also know, though, is once he made that U-turn and he landed up in Haramoria, he did not, in fact, leave the Holy Land immediately, but he went and spent 14 years then at the base of Haramoria, very close to there. There was the Yeshiva of Shame and Aver, um, the Yeshiva that Abraham had spent time in and Yitzchak, and he too went and studied at the yeshiva of shame and aver. Just a side note on all of this is that this, from here we derive the custom that before one gets married, once a child has grown up and a child is ready to venture out into the world, but um, is not yet ready to, uh, you know, get really down to brass tacks to getting married um, and raising a family and worrying about parnosa, livelihood, we should give them time to go and um, be inspired and solidify uh, the education that one is given by giving, allowing them to go to yeshiva or seminary. This you see today um, very much as something that um, plays a pertinent role in a lot of the of, of the young people um, in 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 the you know of the Jewish people today that we allow our children to go to yeshiva, to a seminary, to a gap program, to allow them to further their studies and solidify who they are and what role they're playing in the Jewish people. It has a tremendous, tremendous amount of benefit for them. But going back to our story, we are looking at Yaakov, and uh, he makes a U-turn, and we are going to now look at verse 11 of chapter 28, it reads as follows, Vayifka Bamakom, he uh, approaches the place, and that is where we get the whole thing, that it's not a place, it's not just Stam, he arrived somewhere, he arrived at the place, the place being Mount Moriah, Hara Moriah, um, there on top where his father was nearly sacrificed by his grandfather. So he arrives there. And what does he do? Vayalen Sham, he decides to spend the night there, Kiva Hashemesh, because the sun had set. We spoke about a bit about it last week. God had made the sun set prematurely. Uh, one of the reasons was because Esav or Eliphaz, some say Esav, was actually trying to uh, attack him, was lying in wait for him, and by causing the night to come um, early, he plunged the place into darkness. And he was unable to find Asaph. So, I mean, Yaakov. So Yaakov realizes the sun has set. It was time not to move. And so he decides to spend the night in this makom, in the place. So how does he spend the night? Vayikach me'avne ha'makom. He takes of the stones of the place. Vayasem me'roshotav. And he puts them at his head. Vayishkav b'makom ha'hu. And he lies down to sleep um, in that place. A very enigmatic uh, verse because you can ask many questions. 
Number one, why are you taking stones? And how many stones did you take? Is there any relevance in the amount of stones? Number two, why would you put the stones around your head? If you're using the stones for protection, surely you would like build you know, something around your entire body. If you're trying to ward off animals or something like that, why are you putting them around your head and nowhere else? And why are you going to sleep immediately? What is happening over here? So the first thing that we spoke about last week, and I'm not going to get into it, but just as a mention for anybody who did not hear last week's podcast, this is the point where we learn that Yaakov introduced the evening prayer, the prayer of Arvit or Mariv. Um, his, fourth, his grandfather, Abraham, introduced the prayer of Shachrit of the morning service, Yitzchak, the e afternoon service, and here we've got that Yaakov recited the evening service in, in the place where the holy temple was destined to be built. Okay, like so he couldn't just lie down and go to sleep. He had to pray the evening prayer. But let's go back now. Um, and again, if you did miss um, this whole thing about the evening prayer, then please refer to our podcasts on the chayfm.com website and you can pick up the missing pieces. Why did God make it go dark? Well, the first thing we said was because Asa was, was chasing him. Another reason given in the Midrash, um, and they give it by way of a parable, is that a king had a close friend, and he visited his palace only on rare occasions, and because he was so excited that his friend had visited, he extinguished the lantern so that he would be able to converse privately without anybody seeing them. So God similarly um, extinguished the sun, and uh, th the reason for that was that he was now going to land up speaking to Jacob in a private manner. We are going to go for a little bit of a break. When we get back, we are going to continue this very interesting story. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back, and we're looking at chapter 28, verse 11 of Genesis, and we are asking ourselves a number of questions of why Jacob behaved the way he did. Just FYI, just by the way, if you'd like to join the conversation, ask a question, um, or have a comment, 34519 is our SMS line, 061-895-1019 is our telegram number. So, we said that uh, God you know, allowed it to become dark much earlier because he was like the king with a close friend who wanted to speak privately with Jacob. We need to understand that Jacob actually was not as yet a true prophet. He had never in his life, he was 67, had never been worthy of having God spoken to him. And therefore, like all other prophets, his first prophecy came to him at night in a dream. And that would allow him to gradually get, get, get accustomed to prophecy because it probably is quite a jarring uh, experience. I wouldn't know because I'm not a prophet, but uh, apparently it's very difficult to experience godliness, the divine presence, the first time when one is awake. Now, um, Jacob obviously did not sleep by day. 
So Providence um, arranged for it to become dark and stopped him in his tracks, so to speak, and also stopped him in his tracks in the Makom, in the place, in that place um, on Mount Moriah. We're also told that because Jacob was not yet married, he was not able to experience prophecy except in a dream. Prophecy is very much linked to marriage, and this is a very mystical um, explanation and an answer, like why would one have to be married in order to experience prophecy? So there is a lot of um, mystical discussion about the fact that one can only come to know God through marriage. And that is through marriage both on a physical, intimate level and a spiritual, emotional level. Because when a husband and wife come together, they are coming together to reenact the unity, the oneness that Adam felt when he was created by God. And it was at that point that Adam himself was unified with God, knew God 100%. It was only when God put him to sleep and he split him into Adam and Eve and they, 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 they uh, continued the journey of life as that, that there was friction and there was division and there was a turning away from God. The purpose of marriage is for a husband and wife to come together, to merge both physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally together. And it is in that knowing, in that getting to, to, to know each other um, intimately that one gets to understand God even more, you know, even more profoundly. And so because Yaakov had not yet married. He had not experienced marriage. He was not able to experience prophecy except in a dream. There are many levels of prophecy. Um, the lowest is the level of a dream. There are others where, you know, you're fully awake when, when, when you're in a trance, etc., etc. Um, but right now he was experiencing the lowest level of prophecy. Um, there are a few things just going back to the story of darkness was that he didn't have intention to go and uh, establish the evening prayer. He was actually going up there to do the afternoon prayer as was taught by him, by, by him, by his father, apologies. But by the time he arrived there, it had become dark and therefore the evening prayer was established. That was just, by the way, I forgot to mention. But let's go back to his prophecy, okay? Also, it said that Jacob's prophecy, Yaakov's prophecy had to come in a dream because normally there are three requirements for prophecy to take place. One can only experience prophecy if one is wise, one is strong, and one is wealthy. Now, remember, we went and said Eliphaz, Asaph's son, took away all of Jacob's possessions and it said he was no longer wealthy, right? He was considered as if he was dead. Therefore, because he was not wise, strong and wealthy, he was only wise and strong, he only could get the prophecy of God um, while he was sleeping. Also, it says that... Um, one can only experience prophecy when one's in an elated mood. One needs to be in a very, very positive mood. And Yaakov, of course, was extremely anxious because of Asaph. 
Um, so therefore, um, he only could receive the lowest level of, of prophecy. Now, there's a whole, a whole lot of, um, arguments, um, about these stones. Number one, why did he put them around his head? Number two, how many stones did he put in? Number three, we're actually told that um, the stones actually started arguing about him. So let's just go through all the various explanations. And they really are all one. They're very much um, many sides to the same story. So first of all, we're told that the reason why he put stones around him was that Eliphaz, remember, had taken everything of his. He didn't even have a bedroll. He didn't have something to lie on. And so he was now creating his bed out of these stones. That was the, 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 the so to speak, practical reason why he took stones. Well, how many stones that did he take? So we've got an argument that there were one, there were two, there were three, there were four, or there were 12. Let's look at the one. Okay. The one um, comes from a custom. And it says that Jacob saw and understood that he was standing on very holy ground. It was, as we've said, the ground where the temple would be built. But, of course, it would also be the place where the temple would be destroyed. Now, um, what he did was that in commemoration of the destruction of the temple, he put a stone um, under his head. Um, why? Because he knew he was in a state of mourning. Because he knew that his um, that his his brother Asav, which would eventually become Rome, would conquer Israel. And that's why it is a custom, even till this day, amongst some people, to sleep with a stone under their heads on Tisha B'av. Um, a, the reason why he took two stones is that he went and said to himself, well, Abraham, Abraham, my grandfather, seemingly had offspring such as Ishmael and Keturah's sons, and Yitzchak had an Asaph. Both my father and my grandfather had children that, that were not Jewish or that went off the path. If these two stones become united, um, I will know then that this will be true that only the, the, the two patriarchs, my father and grandfather, had unworthy children, that I, however, will not have unworthy sons. And this will be true even though I am planning to marry Lavan's daughter. So that is um, why he took two stones. Three stones, um, according to the other opinion, it was because Yaakov said, since Abraham and Yitzhak were so great, and Hashem associated his name with them and spoke to them, if these three stones unite, I will know that I am no different than my father and grandfather, and that I too will merit that God will speak to me when I wake up from my sleep, even though I am leaving the Holy Land, and I'm going to visit the wicked Lavan. The four stones... Um, is not, there's actually not a reason given other than he took four stones and he placed them around his head. I don't see an exact reason as to why he took the four stones. Um, maybe that was just the way, that was enough just to cover around the head. Others say 
that he took 12 stones. And the reason why he took 12 stones was because Jacob said, I know that God wishes to, um, to have 12 tribes, like I'm going to be giving birth to the 12 tribes. And that was to parallel the 12 signs of the zodiac. And neither my grandfather Abraham nor my father Yitzchak had these 12 tribes. And I therefore wish to know if I will be the one to father them. And so if these 12 stones become one, I will know that I will be the father of these 12 tribes. So, and where did he take these from? Um, we were told that he found the rocks, the stones from the altar that Abram had built for Yitzchak. And so it was these 12 stones that he took off the altar where Yitzhak was bound as a sacrifice, and he uh, he built them from here. Now, if we are actually going uh, with the opinion that it was 12, it should have been, if you wanted to see that he was becoming, he was going to be having 12 sons, it should say that Yaakov should have taken one stone, and that stone became 12. That would have been a clearer sign. But we are told that Yaakov was more interested in would the 12 sons be united? Would there be no conflict with them? Like each of them, yes, would become a separate kingdom. They would have different parts of the land of Israel. But when he saw the 12 stones become one, he was comforted that, that things would work out well and that, um, that he indeed would be, he would be the father of them and that there would be unity and harmony amongst the Jewish people. And this is something, obviously, that we speak about a lot, that how important it is to have unity amongst the Jewish people. One more idea about um, about the stones is, well, if you are putting up the stones, why is it always talking about the fact that the stones were around his head Surely is he not worried that if the stones are there for protection, that you should be protecting your body and not only your head. And this comes as a very, very powerful uh, lesson to us. Um, and uh, it, it, it is something that is that is something that we should concentrate all the time on. Yaakov understood the potency of having your head, so to speak, screwed on right, that your, your headspace should be one of clarity and one of direction. And it is a lesson to us that our bodies, life, life's journey might take us to many, many places where there is danger. And it's not that, not that we shouldn't protect ourselves in those unknown territories or in those places of danger, but what is fundamental that is wherever we find ourselves, irrespective of where we find ourselves in the world, um, we should ensure always that there is a protection around our head. And this is something that is just so profound, so important, because today we are very open-minded. Dare I say, and thank God I'm like sitting far away and there's nobody that can throw a frot tomato at me, but dare I say that today we are so open-minded that our brains have fallen out, meaning that we no longer have a sense of clarity 
as to what is right and what is wrong from a, an absolute point of view. We today are so open-minded that everything is acceptable, that any, anything and everybody can just do what they want, when they want, how they want. We are also so open-minded and so porous that any information that comes our way, we just swallow it in without any filters. Um, I just saw this last week, and you see it on and on so many times when you get information through social media and half of it is wrong or it is uh, distorted or it is actually an outright lie. And everything that you hear and see and get from the Internet, from social media, you actually need to verify, is it true? People take everything that they get as as true. And it's not necessarily. Some people can start a, a whole fab fabrication, and before you know it, it's just around the world on everybody's mobile devices, and everybody is swallowing it hook, line, and sinker. And the truth is, is, is something very hard to discern these days. Placing the rocks around his head, the message that Yaakov was giving is that a Jew's head must always be clear. There must be a boundary. There must be a fence. There must be a protection around the head that doesn't allow the head to be polluted and um, consumed with the nonsense um, that that we are being fed. And, and, and today, this is probably one of the biggest, biggest challenges is what is right and what is wrong. Are we thinking about things? Are we asking ourselves before we act on information that we get or on, on, on any way whatsoever that we actually get clarity. And that was emphasized. And that was something very important for Yaakov. He was going to sit down. He was about to, um, you know, receive prophecy. He was about to leave the land of Israel. And he understood very, very clearly and very, very concisely that what he needed was he needed the clarity of mind, clarity of direction, clarity of purpose and clarity of truth. And that is indeed a, a lesson for us on high. Um, we're told, going back to the stones, that in fact the 12 stones, if we were holding by that opinion, the stones argued with each other as to who would have the merit of having his head upon them. And um, we're told that there was an entire argument between the stones and what God did was in fact he merged the stones together. And just before we go to the break, just to mention that Although Yaakov was sleeping on bare ground, right, he was also apprehensive of his brother Asab. His sleep was undisturbed. And why was that? Because he um, had put around his head a barrier that all external worries, all external um, distractions were not allowed to enter in. And so he slept peacefully with trust in God that he was at the right place at the right time and that, in fact, God was leading him wherever he needed to be. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. We are on verse number 12 now. We're on Pasuk Yud Beis and it reads as follows. And he dreams. So now he's fast asleep. He's completely relaxed. Vayachalom, he dreams. 
Vihinei, and behold, Sulam Mutsav Arta, a ladder is set up on the ground. Verosho Magia Hashamaima, and the, his, its head is um, reaching towards heaven. Vihinei Malchei Elokim, and behold, he sees angels of God, Oilim Veyordim Bo, going up and coming down this ladder. Well, this is a very, very famous ladder of uh, of Yaakov, um, and it, there is much to be spoken on, and we can spend hours and hours on discussing this ladder. So here, imagine he's closed his eyes, he's seeing a ladder. It's ground, it's on the ground, um, it's set up in Beersheba, and it's reaching towards heaven, and we're told that it's pointing towards the Beit HaMikdash, the temple on high. Now, the first interesting anomaly um, to this is that if you'd think there is a ladder between heaven and earth, and this is what I'm saying, we never say earth and heaven, we always say heaven and earth, because verse 12 reads, Vayachalom, and he dreamt, Vehine Sulam Mutsav Arta, there was a ladder that was set up on the ground, it reached up towards the heaven. The angels of God, Oilim Veyordim Bo, were going up and down. Now, um, first of all, let's just understand what it is that he was seeing. The ladder was set up on the ground in Beersheba, and where it says it was reaching towards the heaven, we are told that it was reaching towards the temple on high and that the ladder was very, very large. It was very, very wide and it stood on a three-legged throne. Okay. And that alluded to the fact um, that the world, in fact, is supported in the merit of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that Jacob, in fact, had become one of the pillars of the universe. Now, this whole transportation of these angels is quite strange because when we talk about a ladder we'll say it was it goes from heaven to earth not earth to heaven but if you look at the actual words it says that the angels of God were going up and then they were going down surely angels live in heaven and they should be coming down and then going up that's number one and the second thing is, it says, Malchai Elokim. It's in the plural. There were angels, which means at least there was two of them. So Jacob sees two angels ascending to heaven and then two angels coming down at the very least. What does this all mean? Well, we are told that um one is accompanied by angels wherever one goes, wherever one walks, we are looked after. And in the case of Yaakov, his angels that were going up, the first two angels that were going up, were in fact the angels that had accompanied him around in the land of Israel. But just as there is a question of leaving the land of Israel, as we discussed last week, again, refer to my podcast, um, and one shouldn't leave the land of Israel without permission, these angels that were accompanying Jacob in the land of Israel were not allowed to leave the land of Israel. 
So the angels going up were the angels that had accompanied him around the land of Israel, and they were taking leave of him because he was now leaving. And what was coming down? Two angels that were descending on the ladder, and these would be the angels who would accompany him after he landed up. He landed leaving the land of Israel. Yes, he was still on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, which is in the middle of the Holy Land. But we're told that the angels of the outside lands were given special permission to enter the land of Israel so that they could prepare to accompany Jacob when he left. There was something else going on with the angels, a very interesting story. But we're told that God's crown, throne of glory, which we call in Hebrew, Kisei HaKavod. Okay, there are four angels that um, surround this throne of glory upon which the top of the, the um, ladder was leaning on. And if you look in Ezekiel, in Yechezkel, in verse 1, uh, sorry, chapter 1, uh, verse 10, you will see there that Yechezkel describes, he sees this Kisei HaKavod, he sees the throne of glory, and he describes these four angels, who they, they are called Chayot. Um, one has the form of a human being, one of a lion, one of a bull, and one of an eagle. And we are told here in the Midrash that the angel that had the f- human form had a face that looked exactly like Yaakov. And the other angels were amazed. So they ascended and they saw the Chayot and then they came down, they descended and they saw sleeping Yaakov with the same face. And it was very difficult for them to understand how could the same form be found in different places. And then they realized they were looking at a, at a saint. They became very jealous of Yaakov and they wanted to kill him because why is, why if he was so unique that his face was engraved on the Kisar covered on the throne of glory, how could he leave the land of Israel and go elsewhere? You know, and look, he was going to abandon his father. They went into an absolute tiz. They started denouncing him. And the angel said, this man um, can inherit the entire world. He can dominate every government. It looks like he's unbelievably powerful that he can have a presence in heaven and a presence on earth. So let's kill him. Um, and therefore, uh, and then we are told, the Midrash says, that other angels spoke up in his defense. Um, and what basically happened was that there was a row with the angels um, for a little while in trying to calm them down and saying to them, you can't, you can't kill Yaakov. He is a tzaddik. He's a yesoda alam. He is a foundation of the world. And this rebellion was squashed. We're going to go for a little bit of a break and wrap up when we get back. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Okay, this is Edel Kozlowski. We've got a couple of more minutes. I want to give you another angel story. If you recall, the angels who came to destroy Storm, you know, who came to destroy the city of Storm um, in the time of Abraham sinned. Why? Because they revealed their plans to Lot. God had not sent them to reveal to Lot what would happen, but only to rescue them. Okay, but what did they say to Lot? They said, we will destroy this place. Now, since angels are actually just emissaries of God, they should not have said that 
they would do it. They use the words, we will destroy this place. Um, they should have maybe even said um, that with his infinite power, God will destroy Storm. Um, and of course, they later told Lot to hurry up because they could not do anything as long as he was there. And this was really clear evidence that they were subject to a higher authority. Nevertheless, they got punished. And God, it says God is very exacting with very righteous people and all the more so with angels. And because the angels went and said, you know, we are going to destroy Storm, God exiled the angels and said, you can't come back to heaven. And they were punished with the exile for, and, and not being in front of the divine presence for a hundred and eighty years. And it was at this point in time that these angels were released from their punishment and given permission to ascend on high. Why? Because they, they were now accompanying Yaakov on his journey from his father's house to Haramoria. And they informed the other angels. And they were the ones that said, come, come, come and see the great Tzadik Yaakov, whose face is engraved on the thorn of, uh, throne of glory. It is always a pleasure to behold his face. And these other angels then descended and to come and see him. So when the Torah says that the angels were ascending and descending before him, what was actually happening was the two angels who had gone to storm were ascending and the other angels were coming down to go and see the face of, of, uh, of, of, of Yaakov. So there's a lot about this. Next week, hopefully, we're going to still stay on this verse and just talk about the beauty of prayer and how, in fact, these angels are a, a metaphor for prayer. Time has run out. I'm wishing you all a wonderful week ahead, and I will be back next time at the same time to join you on A Trip of a Lifetime. Have a great week.